All right. So again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. And if you guys have been with us week in, week out, uh, a few weeks ago, we were looking at Luke chapter 11, verse 37. We saw Jesus, if you remember, he got invited to a dinner party by a Pharisee. And we kind of joked about like, man, what a scene when Jesus gets invited by these guys and goes to their house. Because what happens is Jesus ends up becoming like, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. I, I want to say like the most radical uh guest at a, at a dinner party ever, he starts calling out their legalism, their hypocrisy, their um, refusal to enter the kingdom of God by, by putting their faith in Jesus. And he just, man, it's like a record scratch at that dinner party. Now, Jesus did show up because he wanted to teach them. He wanted to love them. He continued to give them opportunity to turn and to repent and to trust in him. But see, tonight, it's funny because we're going to see another dinner party situation. I mean, these guys just don't learn. I don't know, but Jesus is good to continue to show up and to teach these guys. So that said, let's look at Luke chapter 14. We're going to see a healing in verses one through six. And it says, now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent and he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And so right off the bat, we see Jesus showing up. Like I said, he's invited to the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And they say, hey, come eat bread with us on the Sabbath. This is why I call it. It's almost like a dinner party, right? You have the elite social, um, like socially important people of the religious community. there gathering together to partake in bread, to commune with one another. And Jesus is here with them in this case. And it just, again, I can't stress this enough. If you and I knew that we were going to be invited to someone's house and they're going to try to like, you know, accuse us of things and set us up to try to discredit us, would you go to that party? I don't know about, about me or I don't know about you, but I'd say for me, man, it's one of those things where I'd probably be pretty hesitant to go, but Jesus's great love and his great willingness to teach these so-called religious elite. He says, man, I'm going to go in there even though I know. I know they're going to try to trap me, but here's the thing. Jesus also knows I'm greater than these guys. He knows that he's more powerful than these guys. You can't threaten the lion, man. Jesus, the lion of Judah, he's coming into this place. He says, look, I'm going to come in here and I can either be your judge or I can be your advocate. And so he's coming in and saying, man, I hope they accept me as an advocate. We saw last week, Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you is like a hen gathered her chicks, but you rejected me. You were not willing. And see, Jesus is willing, but they're rejecting him. But he shows up to their house. And sure enough, in verse 2, it says that there's a man there who had dropsy. That sounds, I mean, honestly, I hear the word dropsy. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means, right? So I had to look it up to say, okay, what in the world is dropsy? And modern day, the modern day term for this is edema. And it's the swelling caused by excess fluid trapped in your body's tissues. And it's often a result of congestive heart failure, kidney disease, or cirrhosis of the liver. 
So kind of interesting. It's still a thing that happens today. It's just under a different name. And it's interesting because it would be something very visible. This man's face was probably swollen with the fluids that were, you know, that were, that shouldn't have been there, but were there and it was present. But it's interesting because we, if we know anything about these Pharisees, these rulers, these scribes, they did not associate with the lowly. They didn't do things like this. They aren't like Jesus. So I look at this and say, why in the world would these religious elite invite a man with dropsy? I would have to think, I don't have total 100% confirmation on this, but I'd have to think that there would be a level of this man being considered unclean of some sort. And they say, hey, at the very least, they're like, we don't want to eat with guys like this. They're eating and having a meal on the Sabbath, like what they thought was the holiest day, right? I think the reason that this guy is here is because it's a setup. They know Jesus's willingness to heal people who are in need. I don't know about you, but I always think of situations like this. I go, man, I love how Jesus is in a room full of elite people, right? In the eyes of man. But he, he notes the guy with dropsy. No one had to tell him that there was a man with dropsy there. Jesus knows all things, but he, you could imagine Jesus saying, that's the guy I'm here for. I'm here for the needy. I'm here for those lowly ones. The theme verse of Luke is Luke 19, 10. It says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here's a man who is so in such great need of healing. And Jesus says, it's a good thing I'm here. And it's a good thing you're here because I'm going to heal you tonight. <laughs> and so it's a cool thing for Jesus to see this man. But sadly, the religious leaders here, they saw this poor suffering man as nothing more than an opportunity to try to discredit Jesus and set him up for this situation. And look at verse three through six, right? In verse three, Jesus, it says, Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? This is funny because I don't know if, you, if, if you've ever known anyone like this, but sometimes people have answers to questions no one's asking, right? The good news is Jesus answers questions that everyone should be asking. And Jesus isn't asked by anyone if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, but he knows their hearts. He hears the questions in their hearts. He hears the thoughts that they're thinking, man, who's Jesus think he is? There's a man with dropsy in here with edema, with this, this swollen fluid going on. And like he can't heal. And if he does, see, they're trying to set him up to accuse him because they believe that you could not work anything like this on the Sabbath. And when he asked this, they had to sit there silent. Because see, the question was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or the Sabbath? And they kept silent, right? Because if they say, yes, it's lawful to heal, then all their accusations of Jesus prior to this, when he healed the bout over woman last week, when he healed the, the man with the withered hand at a synagogue back, I think it was in Luke 6, I believe, when he did all these things, they said, man, Jesus is a mess because he does this stuff. But see, Jesus wasn't breaking the law. God proved it. And if they say, man, it is lawful, then their own legalistic ways of practicing religion are proven like debunked. Now, if they say that it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, what that's saying is, A, like man is not important to God on the Sabbath. God will let a man suffer. And B, it just shows that they don't understand that the law was not given to, to harm man. Man's need always trumped over the law. It always rose above. It, there should never be a prohibiting of healing and blessing 
on the Sabbath. Because remember, the Sabbath was to be hollowed, to remember that the Lord is good and that God, is, he alone is God, and we would rest and rejoice in that. These are the kinds of works that make people hollow the name of God and worship him. So Jesus is doing everything that is lawful. There's no law that said you couldn't heal. And these guys knew that, but they were trapped in traditional legalism, man-made, created religion. And so in Luke 6, 9, when he healed the withered hand, the man with the withered hand at the synagogue, Jesus asked them at that time, he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And then he healed the man. So he proved God's heart on the matter. The same thing last week in chapter 13, when Jesus healed the woman that was bowed over because of that spirit of infirmity. The Lord loves his creation. He loves us who were made in his image. And he sees us suffering and he says, I am willing to heal you if you're willing to receive it. And see, these people were willing to receive it. But man, these hard-hearted religious leaders, all they want to do is try to discredit Jesus and push him away. And look at what Jesus does in verse four. So simple, right? It says they kept silent, but then Jesus took the man and he healed him and let him go. <laughs> Jesus says, look at you don't even have to answer my question. I'm going to show everyone that I do heal. I have the power to deliver from sin, from death, from infirmity. For those that are in need and put their trust in Jesus Christ, he will save. Amen. And see these men in the room, it didn't matter what their answer was. Jesus was going to prove himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And see in this section here, look at what Jesus tells them in verse 5 and 6. It says, then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And here's the reality. Jesus used an illustration like this last week. He was basically saying, hey, look, it, an animal is of value to us, right? Isn't a human being made in the image of God, a Jew, we can assume this man to be a Jew here. Um, given that he's you know, in the house of these religious leaders on a synagogue. So we can at least say he's, he may be considered almost unclean, but he's a Jew. And they're, they're, they're trying to like, like see this guy as nothing more than an object. And Jesus says, man, God sees this person so much more than just some dejected, rejected object. Jesus says, man, he's the only one in this room right now, from what I can tell. He's the only one that Jesus says, man, that guy needs me and I'm willing, I'm going to save him. <laughs> And I don't know where you're at tonight. You might say, man, where is God? Does he see me? The Lord absolutely sees you where you're at. He sees you in your suffering. He sees you in your addiction. He sees you in your trial. He sees you in your tribulation. And he says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Right? Jesus said that in John 16, 33. We need to be of good cheer even in those difficult times. And it's so easy for me to say in like a place of comfort, but for those of you suffering tonight, know that the Lord has not turned a blind eye to you. He sees you. He's willing to heal you because he has a great love for you. Such a great love that it was shown to us that he was willing to go and die on a cross to give us eternal life. Amen. And so when he says this, the people that are there, they have nothing to say at all. It says right here that they're completely silent. They could not answer him regarding these things because they were embarrassed, right? I mean, they, they proclaimed to know the law. But think about Exodus 23, 4 through 5. It said, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. And so they didn't understand the word. They rejected God's will for their life. They rejected God's law. They rejected God's son. And they just sat silent in humiliation. And see, the point here is that Jesus is going to do the things that he's going to do. You need to decide, are you going to humble yourself, put your faith in him and be healed? Or are you going to kick and scream and fight and reject him till your dying day? And that is the unpardonable sin that leads to eternal separation from Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus keeps showing up to these guys' houses, having meals with them, the most intimate thing you can do in Jewish culture. And he's like, man, I'm going to sit down and eat with you guys. We're going to dip the bread together. We're going to do all these things. And it's because I, I love you and I long for you to, to, to come in under my wing, like he said in the last chapter. He wants to protect them and care for them as the Messiah of the Jews. But they wouldn't have it. And see, the problem was their pride. And so verses 7 through 14, Jesus is going to teach on the topic of humility. Take a look here. Verse 7, it says, So he told a parable to those who were invited, speaking of the dinner party, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give I'm sorry, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's what we're told. Jesus told this parable according to verse 7. Because he noted how the Pharisees all chose the best place at the table. See, to us, I don't know, unless you're a real formal family, uh, you don't really think much about where you sit at a dinner table in our culture. It's just, hey, we're all going to eat. We're going to sit at the table. It's fine. Just sit down. Well, in their culture, especially at an event like a wedding feast that's being talked about here, when you sat down, where you were seated represented like how prominent you were in that setting. So if you had a wedding feast, the, the, the groom and the bride would be right there. It would be like the best man, the, the maid of honor or whatever, and then it would go out and so on. But as you were like the more important person in the room, you'd get that, that prime seat, man. And you could walk into a room and you would immediately know who's the important person here. You'd look over and go to the guy right there in that chair. That's the most important person. Well, here's the deal. Jesus is sitting at this dinner party with all the religious elite. Remember when they would gather like this on the Sabbath, they would leave the doors and windows open so that the, the nobodies, the lowly of the community could look in and just get a taste and a sense of what it is to be fancy and elite so that they could look in and say like, oh, that's how we should behave if we ever make it, right? So these guys loved looking lofty. And so you can just imagine almost like musical chairs when there's one chair left and there's two people when they're like shoving each other, elbowing each other, elbows and knees, man, trying to get that best spot. And see, Jesus noted that. He said, man, you guys are all trying to be in the best spot. You're all exalting yourselves. And see, one of my favorite verses that I've committed to memory because I have attention, my pride to try to elevate myself. I think we all have this. Philippians 2, 3, it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of, of mind, esteem others better than yourselves. 
Paul wrote that so well. And it's one of those things that I got to remember all the time, just to steam everyone else to be better than me. Because I'll tell you what that does is you will be lifted up in your humility rather than embarrassed by pride at the feast. Like you'll get glory instead of shame, right? Because let's be clear, lowliness will allow for exaltation, but self-glorification allows for humiliation. Like if I come around here, like I think about this, like I used to run my mouth in like middle school, be like, oh, I'm the best shooter on the whole team. I can play basketball better than anyone, right? And then the problem is I say all that and I come out here and I try to shoot and some dude is just shooting the lights out at basketball. It makes me look silly. But now when you're a pasty white kid that says nothing about basketball and you just show up and they're like, hey, we need an extra man. Can we put you in? And you happen to make one or two shots. They're like, oh my gosh, you're so much better than we thought you were because you're, you're kind of like an average size pale white kid, right? This is much better because you're like, dude, that's cool. They actually like, like gave me props on my game because I came in here and didn't proclaim to be Michael Jordan, right? And what happens all the time is everyone, I heard that America rates number one in self-confidence. And that makes so much sense. We, we rank like 26 in the world. I don't know. I made up that number, but it's somewhere down on the list in regards to education level and like intelligence. But yet we're number one in self-confidence. And that's not an knock to Americans. Let's be clear. I just, it's still the greatest country. Come on. But the reality is we get so self-confident before we know how to do anything. And see, these guys are like this. They said, well, we are the religious elite. We belong to Abraham. We're so important. And everyone in the room was like, I got to get that chair, man. I got to get that seat that elevates myself, that lifts me up. But James 4.10 said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And see, the idea is to steam others above yourself so that the master can come and say, hey, what are you doing over here, man? You're... Let's bring you over here. Let's bring you to the top seat. Now, let's be honest. Let's say you are the, the, the least in the room. At least you're not going to be embarrassed when they tell you to move down the ranks. Just take the lowest seat. Be the servant. As Jesus said, you want to be first of all, be last of all, and servant of all. That's how you do that. It's an upside down kingdom in Jesus's world, right? He says, go serve. Don't go, you know, throwing elbows to get that chair next to the, to the king or next to the host or next to the groom. Just let it play out, man. Let the master come and get you and say, hey, it's time to move up the ranks here. And it's funny. I'll tell you, I have a real life experience of this literally at a wedding. Uh, my brother-in-law, Matthew, and I, uh, we went to our friend Carlos's wedding back in the day. Carlos Lopez, if you listen, shout out, man. But he had a really nice, cool, big wedding, right? And we showed up and we were a little early. So we got there and we sat down and we looked at all the tables and we kind of felt like, dude, we're not family. We're good friends with Carlos, but we don't know like anyone else here, right? Outside of Carlos, his brother and his parents. That's it. So we took literally the seat at the back of the room. And I'll never forget. This is probably, yeah, seriously, like 10 or 11 years ago. And Carlos's dad walked in and said, what, James, Matt, what are you guys doing? Get up. And go up to the front. Carlos will love to have you guys here and see you guys. It was just so funny because we were like, man, we're just blessed to be here, man. This is cool. Carlos getting married. Here we are. And I remember telling Matt at the time, like, hey, dude, this is like the Bible. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> like literally applying Jesus's parable. I know Jesus's parables are figurative that have a deeper literal meaning. But in that case, it was very literal for us. We're like, this is funny. We took the lowest spot and the father, the guy throwing the whole thing is like, hey, come on up here. And I just thought that was so funny. I was reminded of that as I was studying for this. And the reality is Jesus says it as a promise in verse 11. He says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
That's a promise of the Lord that we can hold on to for, for good or for bad, really. Because when there's times when I go, man, I'm kind of puffed up right now, right? Like knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, according to 1 Corinthians 8, 1. And sometimes I get kind of puffed up because I think I know stuff. I'm a know-it-all, right? And then the Lord has to humble me, show me you don't know everything. Calm down. <laughs> and I get humbled. Well, then there's other times when I remember, man, I kind of feel like I'm in a place where, I mean, I don't know what this is, but there's times when I feel like, man, I'm, I'm kind of, Lord, am I in the right place? Because I don't know if I'm doing like, like really living up to the, the skill set that you've given me, the talent that you've given me. I hope that doesn't sound terribly arrogant, right? As I'm teaching on humility. But you know how it goes. There's sometimes when you're like, man, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm the best steward I can be with the gifts the Lord has given me. And the Lord just reminds me in those moments, hey, just stay humble. Just stay there. I'll exalt you in due time, even if it's not on this planet. The Lord has a way to balance things in eternity. And see, you might feel like, man, I am constantly walking around like, like just lowly. And the Lord hasn't exalted me. Well, we're told in 1 Peter 4, 6 through 7, I believe it's 1 Peter 4. It says, cast all your cares upon the Lord, right? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. And that really, I believe, means in eternity. Praise the Lord if you get some kind of blessing here on earth, but don't let it go to your head. I think all of us have the problem where if we got too blessed here, we just get puffed up and we would have to get humbled, right? So the Lord says, man, just remember, you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And again, we don't humble ourselves just to be exalted, but it's just the reality. Jesus says, hey, I see you. I see where you're at. You feel so lowly. You feel like you've been humbled maybe, and you're still in that position. One day as you continue to seek me, I will exalt you. And we're all guaranteed exaltation in the resurrection, right? As we go into eternity, man, we're going to be there and we're going to get to be with the Lord, be in his presence. That's going to be the greatest, man. Can't wait. And so as we continue here, look at verse 12 through 14. Jesus says, then he also said to whom who, who invited him. Okay, so the guys during the party that invited Jesus, Jesus says this. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And see, this is, again, Jesus just being this, this, this awesome party guest. So far, they tried to set him up, and he healed a man that was there at the party, just made this great scene, called them out, and said, hey, like, like, who knows the law now, right? Who knows God's heart now, right? And then he starts to explain to them, hey, you guys need to humble yourselves, man. You're all fighting over a chair. You guys look ridiculous, right? And now he tells the guy that invited him, he says, hey, you know what you should do next time? I'm going to tell you how to plan your party. I'm going to tell you who to invite. He says, stop inviting all these fancy people, okay? Because you're just doing this because it makes you look fancy. You invite the elite people and you invite people that were, are comfortable to you, that will always bless you by repaying you. He says, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Avoid inviting those people and just those people, okay? Let me be clear. He's not saying you can't invite your family and your friends. But he's saying what you are doing is you're making an exclusive thing where you're not inviting the people that would really be blessed by this. I mean, they're having these big old dinners and everyone there, they're probably just judging the food. They're like, oh, I could have done this better. I have better at my house. You got the lowly people outside like, man, I would kill for a meal, man. <laughs> like I, that smells good from where I'm at. I want to get in there. And Jesus says, man, these people, let them come in and partake. 
And he says, yeah, and you should invite the beggarly, the disabled, the crippled, the blind is really the direct correlation with the original language. And he says, this would allow for opportunities to generously give to those in need and they're unable to repay so that we would know it is sincere. See, we're so quick to say we're generous because we give to people we know that will give back to us. We are so generous to throw a party, but we only invite the people that agree and believe all the same things that we do. I'll tell you, it's culture shock when you start to get around people that don't agree with all the things that you believe in the Bible. But it's a blessed thing because you don't realize until you get in that midst that you're like, man, these people are needy for the Lord Jesus. Amen. And see, if I just stuck to my group of the saved saints, man, it's real comfortable. It's real easy. And I know they'll get me back with a dinner at some point. Hey, I'll invite you over. You invite me and we'll continue to fellowship, right? That's good. Jesus is not saying don't have those relationships and don't like nurture those. But man, don't just be exclusive to be like whatever favors and benefits you. Invite some people in that will be blessed, man, to hear the gospel, to eat with you, to have that time. To, to You can just show them that you love them. Because here's Jesus showing up to a bunch of people's houses, right? Jesus, again, he never calls us to do anything he wouldn't himself do first. That's a good manager, good boss right there. He says, I'm going to people's houses who generally do not like me and generally do not believe in me. But yet I'm going and I'm giving them truth. I'm giving them the gospel. I'm giving them love. <laughs> now, again, he's not compromising on any of this. He doesn't begin part participating in all their weird little man-made traditions. He calls them out for what they are. So he's still very salty and bright in a good way, but he's still loving in the sense that he's willing to show up. So many times I'm like, well, who's going to be there? Now that sounds like it's going to be like, ugh, it's going to be a clash, man. I think I'd rather just hang out with my same five friends over and over. And, you know, I think we all can be like that. And so in this case, the idea is when you do this, you will be repaid again at the resurrection of the just. Did you note that in the verse, in verse 14, the resurrection of the just, I started thinking about this the other day and I thought, man, I have no business being involved with the resurrection of the just because I, in my own strength, I can't be justified. I'm a sinner. But we're told in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have peace with God, because we have been justified through Jesus Christ, like we've been justified because of Jesus. And really it's Jesus's resurrection that allows us to participate in the resurrection of the just. Amen. So when you read that, say, man, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be repaid at the resurrection for the things that you do in his name when you do, in, do them in sincere faith and response to Jesus' cross and his life and his calling upon your, your own life. And so at this point, he says, you will be repaid. Proverbs 19.17 says, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. And the reality is, man, the Lord keeps track of these things and we're going to be blessed at the resurrection of the just. But we also know there's a resurrection of condemnation, according to John 5, 29. For those that reject Jesus's words, they may do nice things, but they're not doing them in sincerity. They're not doing them unto the Lord. And man, until we give our lives to the Lord and serve him and obey his commands, we won't participate in that resurrection. So the need today is to say, man, I am, I'm like one of those beggars that Jesus says to invite to the banquet. I'm a spiritual beggar. And Jesus says, I see you and I'm willing to reach out to you and give you what you need. I'm going to give you the bread, which is the, the word of God. I'm going to give you that water, that, that Holy Spirit, that living water. And I'm going to give you salvation. And see, I love it because we're just called to follow Jesus's example. He says, I did it first. 
You go do what I'm calling you to do. You have salvation. Everything's covered in that sense. Go take care of others. I will make sure that you get repaid for these things. Pretty exciting stuff. But look at this in hesitation that Jesus addresses. Look at verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 15. It says, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So I have to pause it there before we read the whole parable that's coming up here, the parable of the Great Supper. Because what's happening here, I believe, I believe they're at a dinner party where that record scratch, so to speak, has happened again. We have all these guys uncomfortable because Jesus has now told them, hey, you don't understand the law or the heart of God because I just healed this guy with dropsy. You guys need to humble yourselves and stop being so proud. You guys need to consider the poor and stop just hanging out with the elite. And this guy's like, I don't know what to say, right? So this guy that's at the party there, he just says, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God because he just heard about the resurrection of the just. This guy's assuming that he's part of that. He's like, dude, I'm part of the resurrection of the just. So yeah, bless, bless the Lord for the fact that we're going to eat bread together in the kingdom of God. And see, we can tell by Jesus' response, this man is, is, is as sincere as the day is long. He believes he is going to be at the kingdom of God eating bread with Jesus. But Jesus answers him with like, dude, no, you and all your buddies here, you've all hesitated to accept the invitation to come to that great banquet, that, that marriage supper of the lamb as spoken of in Revelation 19.9. It says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And see, Jews were always expected. The religious Jews, they said, man, someday the Messiah is going to come. He's going to set up a kingdom there on earth and they're going to eat with him and rule and reign with him. And they can't wait for that banquet. That's what this guy's talking about. But see, in their actions and their responses towards Jesus' words, they were ready for the kingdom, but they weren't willing to accept the invitation of Jesus Christ. They were missing the invitation into the kingdom. And so Jesus addresses it. They're being hesitant. Look at verse 16 onward. It says, Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. So what happens here in this case is in the parable, it's the parable of the great supper. We have this reality that there would be people that were invited to a big, awesome banquet, but yet they would decline the invitation and not be part of it. And see verse 16 and 17, the master that's throwing this feast, he sends his servant and he says, hey, go tell everyone that's invited, come for all things are now ready. And see for us, we lose a little bit of this in our culture. But in Jewish culture, when you threw a big old banquet, like a wedding, right, which was like the, the apex of like the Jewish party, right? When you threw a big old wedding or a big old banquet, you would send out a save the date, so to speak, right? Not, not like we have, but similar. The idea was, hey, on this day, we're going to have a big old feast, a big old banquet, probably, you know, months and months in advance, if not a year in advance, right? Say so save that date. And then the time, though of when the actual party would be, that was unknown. Because it was like, man, we got to get all the, all the animals. We got to slaughter all the animals. We got to get everything set. They didn't always know exactly what time. So you knew the date and you know, months in advance, you'd be like, cool, I want to go to that banquet, right? You'd say with your mouth, you'd confirm, hey, I'm going to go, I'll be there. But then the day of, you see, things are ready. And so the master says, hey, go tell everyone that's invited. That it's on. It's right now. It's at, it's at 8.30. Okay. It's tell them to come on. We're ready for them. And look what happens here in verse, uh, verse 18. It says, 
But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So here's three, three excuses that are given of why these guys can't come. It says they're in one accord. That's not talking about a Honda sedan, okay? That just means that their hearts were united in this. They, they may not have known each other, but their answers and their hearts were similar. What they said was, hey, we got other things that have come up since the day that we told you we would come to your party, that we would come to the banquet that are just more important to us today. And so the first two guys, the first guy's like, hey, I bought some real estate. I brought, I bought some ground, right? Which I think is verse, verse 18, right? He says, hey, I, I, I bought some ground, so I got to go check it out. Real estate 101, man, like go check out the property before you buy it, right? So this seems like a lame excuse. Verse 19, the guy's like, hey, I bought five yoke of oxen. That's like 10 oxen, right? You got two on each yoke at least. So you got two oxen times five. He just spent a lot of money on a business investment. And he hadn't even seen him. He's like, I got to go check out my oxen I just bought. I just got to go, go work on this thing. And then the last guy, he doesn't even really call it an excuse. Verse 20, he's like, I've married a wife. Therefore, I can't come. Sorry, the old ball and chain is keeping me at home. <laughs> he just, he throws his wife under the bus, like blame her, right? But the reality is this might be a man that just values his family life more than the banquet that he's invited to. And see what we see in the section when Jesus tells this parable to a bunch of men in a room who want to look important through their relationships, look important because of their gaudy robes and look important because of their like, you know, their, their, the way they're esteemed by men. They're concerned about these things. They're all concerned about fame and money and power and beneficial relationships that are all earthly things. And Jesus tells this parable saying, essentially, man, you guys are all choosing passing earthly things over the great banquet. And let's be clear in the Jewish culture, man, a banquet, again, I know I said it was a big deal, but some people might only go to one huge banquet in like every 10 years or maybe all of their life. Like you look forward to this. This wasn't the kind of thing that you would take lightly. Like, man, you may never eat this good ever again. And you may never see all these people again. It's like, man, I'm going to partake. But these guys, they valued earthly things more than that 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 invite to the to the banquet and clearly we can understand what jesus is talking about here the man said i can't wait right he said in verse 15 i can't wait to eat bread in the kingdom of god and then jesus tells us parable of the great supper he's basically saying hey that event that you want to go to you're missing it because you're so distracted with earthly relationships and with earthly things like power and fame and money and so look what happens as we continue in verse 21 and 22 it says so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And so note in verse 21, the very first thing is that the man, the host is angry. The master that's drawing this banquet, he's like, man, I made this banquet and I had this in mind for that elite group that I invited. They all told me they would come. They RSVP'd that they'd be here. And then the day of, they tell me, I got distracted with other things. I can't come to your banquet anymore. And here's the reality. He says, well, guess what? I'm still having a banquet. 
See, you, you may reject the call of Jesus Christ. You might reject eternity with him. Here's the deal. He's still Lord. He's still Savior. He still owns eternity. And he says, if you don't want to come, I'm still having this thing. And so he tells the servant, the master tells the servant, go reach the needy, the lost, the maimed, the blind, the lame, all of those. This is God sending Jesus Christ to the elite Jews and they reject his invitation. And then he says, you know what? I'm here to save the needy, the lost, to seek and to save that which was lost. And I think about, was it Luke uh, 5, 31 and 32, right? It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And see, if a bunch of people said, hey, we made this big old banquet inside, we're not going to eat it. All those poor people out there like, man, I want in on that, right? They saw their need for food. They saw their need for fellowship. And they said, we'll come in if you invite us. And what's wild is the servant goes out. He invites all of those people. The very people Jesus told the host of this party he should invite as well, right? Like blind, maimed, and lame. And they were willing to come in because they wanted to taste that. But there's still room. And so there's still room in the house. There's still room at the banquet. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says, Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And see, that's the punchline here. That's why Jesus is telling the story. That man that said, hey, I'm going to enter into that kingdom feast. I'm going to eat the bread. I'm going to celebrate right now because it's super awkward in the room because Jesus is calling us all out. Jesus says, man, those people that were invited will never taste the supper. But verse 23 and 24, it's shocking because he says, the servant goes out to the highways and the hedges. See, this represents the Gentiles that were beyond even the poor and lame and maimed Jews that were initially like not considered the elite ones. There was still room. So the master says, go invite all of those people that are out there. Go invite, hit the highways, man, invite anyone you can. And remember, this is all because the original guest list had declined. They rejected the invitation to that great banquet. And now the lowly, the, the needy, and the Gentiles, they're been, being grafted in. And it's just like what Jesus said last week when he told them that they would miss out on, on the kingdom of God. He said in Luke 13, 29 through 30, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east, from the west, from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And see, so this servant's told, hey, go compel anyone out there to come to this thing. There's going to be people out in the highways and hedges that don't even know who the master is, right? Like speaking of Gentiles, people in these lost places, you and I, right? What business do we have hearing about the God of Israel, the one and true and living God? And so the servant goes out and he's to compel these people and he's to tell them, come to this banquet that we can fill out the house of God. So that we can rejoice for eternity. And this is what's so cool here. Second Corinthians 5.20, Paul wrote this. He said, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And see, we can confidently invite people to come for all things are ready. Just as the master told the servant here, tell them all, come today. Everything's ready to go because salvation has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
It's ours for the taking tonight. We need to compel others to come to Jesus. Tell them, man, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the redeemer, the reconciler. He is the one that will make all things right in an eternal way. Now, let's be clear. Jesus goes on here in the last section. We're going to kind of work through it kind of quickly. We're almost done here, verses 25 to 35. But what Jesus is going to say here is, you got to heed my word. But before you can, you can really walk with Jesus as a disciple, he's going to call them to count the cost. Look what it says, verse 25 to 27. Jesus turns to the great multitudes that were with him. So he's not at the party. He's leaving the party and a great multitude of people are following him. Tons of people, right? It says, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so this is a wild statement being given to the multitude. Multitudes been walking with Jesus because they probably think it's pretty cool that he keeps like, you know, healing people of dropsy, healing the bowed lady that's, that's bowed over, right? Um, healing the crippled and, and raising the dead. They're walking with him. They're like, this is so cool. We're followers of Jesus. I think the way I follow some people on Instagram, I don't really know them, but I follow them. But see what Jesus is saying right here, you guys are going to become my disciples if, what does he say here? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and his own life cannot be my disciple. Can I tell you, this statement was once repeated to me by one of my friends in college back in the day. It was years after college I'd come to the Lord, but he just said, I can't follow Jesus because Jesus calls us to hate our mother and brother and father and sister and all this. And it, let's be clear here. Do we really believe that perfect, just Jesus would actually give a command and say, hey, if you want to be my disciples, you got to get violent and it be hate-filled towards your family and friends? Come on. He's not being literal in that sense. What he is being literal of is the love and hate spectrum that the Jews, that Jewish culture understood. We always think of hate being the exact opposite of love. But in this statement, he says, Unless in comparison to your great love for me, if it were on a spectrum and your love is way over here, this is the love for the Lord that you have. Your love for your friends, for your family, for everyone else, man, it should be so far out of the picture. <laughs> Some would almost think it was hate compared to how much you love the Lord. Let's be clear. You might say, well, James, how do you know that? Well, first of all, Jesus would not tell us to break the law. He said in Matthew 5, 17, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he called others to live accordingly. He's not a hypocrite. He wouldn't tell you, hey, obey the law, which says in Exodus 20, 12, one of the 10 commandments, honor your father and mother, and then say, hey, now go hate your mother and father. Obviously, he wouldn't contradict himself that way. And then in Leviticus 19, 18, also law, it says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus wouldn't say, hey, go hate your, your neighbor, go hate your friends, go hate your mother and father. That would be opposite of the law, which he came to fulfill and uphold, right? So he's not saying, hey, go be hateful. 
But what he is saying is that your love for the Lord should be so much greater than every other earthly relationship and every earthly thing that you have, even your own life. Because the Lord warned Israel in Deuteronomy 13, 6 to 8. He said, the reality is that your family and your friends can entice you away from following and serving the Lord. Don't let any earthly relationship come in and steal that love, that that desire, that passion, that fiery saltiness that you have for the Lord. Man, your other relationships in that regard should be so far on the spectrum that some would think, man, is it like he loves the Lord so much, it almost looks like he hates his family. Let's be clear. When you love Jesus more than anything else, you're going to love people better than you ever have. You're going to invite the blind, the maim, and the lame to your parties because you love the Lord. And because you know that they're made in the image of God, you're going to take the time to go hit the streets and witness to those people that are dejected. You're going to care for people. When you drive by and see someone that's stranded, a young girl that's stranded and you say, Lord, what are we to do here? I got to call the police and make sure we get someone here. This is like a real life story, man. I'm just telling you things I wouldn't have done back in the day. I would have said, who's that? I don't care. I'm not making anything off of this. I'm not doing, I'm out of here. But when the Lord calls you to love him, with such a great love, you will in turn love your neighbor as yourself. You will have an esteem for others that says, man, they're more valuable than even me. I got to put my put them over me, right? So this isn't about just go around hating everyone. That's a misconstrued idea. But look at verse 27. This is really extreme. He tells the multitude, hey, if you guys are following me, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." The cross was understood when you bore a cross, when you put on that cross beam and you were led by the Romans to be crucified, there was no coming back. You were going to die. And Jesus says, you put that cross on and you take that cross and you can be my disciple. But if you don't want to take a cross up, if you don't want to die to self, you still want to be the leader of this whole movie that is your life. You want to be the star. You don't want Jesus to be the star. Man, you can't be my disciple. You got to be willing to die to self. And you take this thing that is a pathway of death, the cross. But as we allow the Lord to just kill our flesh through the power of his spirit, as we allow him to just give us this love for him that values his kingdom over our kingdom, we actually find life through his cross. We were given eternal life. And by carrying the cross that he calls us to bear, we will experience life more abundantly. Amen. And see, the reality is when Jesus tells us to people, they're probably thinking, man, I, I don't like the cross. No one wants the cross. No one even talked about the cross at the dinner table. It was disgusting. It was the worst way you could die. And Jesus tells this big old multitude, man, you want to talk about like trying to grow a church out. This is not the kind of thing you tell to a crowd and, and expect them to continue to walk after you. This is the kind of thing that says, hey, we got to get to the point here. Who's really serious about following me? You got to be willing to spiritually die to yourself. You have to be willing to say, Lord Jesus, you are in control now. We say, Jesus, take the wheel. Man, Jesus, take everything. Take my life. <laughs> and when I do that, man, the Lord's going to be glorified. The world will be testified to. The body of Christ will be edified and I'll be blessed. And so Jesus says, this is what it is. You need to come and do this. Because at the end of the day, you might want to hold on to all your things that you think are so important. But Jesus said, right, in Mark 8, 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Man, carry that cross. It leads to life. And so it's interesting because it's almost as if Jesus knows, hey, these guys think that they're just being invited to a banquet now. 
And they say like, hey, we, we accept the invitation. We follow you, Jesus. We show up where you're at. Jesus is like, man, it's not just an invitation. You have to be willing to become living sacrifices as Romans 12, one talks about. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable when we understand that Jesus gave us eternal life. I can give him my 70 years that I have on this earth. You know, whatever it is, shorter or longer, it's not long compared to eternity. Man, Jesus is, is, is so worthy. It's so reasonable that we would give our life over to him for what he's done for us. And see, it was the lowly that were willing to say, the humble that were willing to say, I'll take a cross for Jesus. The religious elite were like, man, we're not here to die. We're here to rule. We're here to reign. And so Jesus says, look it. If you're going to try to come after and follow me, you got to count the cost. And so what Jesus does here in wrapping up, he gives two examples of, of what it looks like to count the cost in following Jesus. Look at verse 28 through 33. It says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who will see it will begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So the first example is a man that has the intention of building a big old tower. He goes and he lays the foundation, but then he didn't count the cost. He didn't consider the cost. So he, all, he basically laid a foundation and he quit. He's like, man, this is so much harder. It's so much more expensive. It's so much more time consuming. It takes so much of my energy. Man, this is difficult. And what it says is like onlookers would pass by and they just mock this guy. They're like, oh my gosh, this guy started this thing. What an idiot. He didn't count the cost. <laughs> what a fool. Count the cost before you start building. So imagine like what that would be like. I actually heard the story. I believe it's in North Korea. They built this really awesome looking skyscraper, but it's empty to this day because they just ran out of funds to like build anything out of it. You can look it up. I don't know the name of the tower, but it's in North Korea. And it just cracks me up because it's kind of like the Tower of Babel. Those guys tried to build something marvelous, but apart from God's blessing, you just can't do it. You may think you could do it, but you can't. And if we build on any other foundation besides Jesus, we will be foolish builders. Man, it's worth the costs that are involved to build upon Jesus Christ. He did the hard, heavy lifting. Now we just have to follow his calling, follow what he calls us to do in this life. Sometimes it seems hard, like to sacrifice things of this world, things of our flesh, but let's be real. Those things are passing, fading. And, and trust me, I'm not saying this because I'm perfect. I just know the regret, the buyer's remorse that happens when I do sin, when I fall short. I go, man, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that, right? <laughs> it's like, Lord, forgive me. And see, that's what we're talking about. That's the cost of following Jesus. Well, he died upon a cross for all of our sins. Man, it's reasonable that I would count the cost and say, hey, it's worth it. It's worth putting my time into studying the word every day. It's worth the cost of possible alienation from friends, right? But at the end of the day, the Lord is more important than all of it. And so the second, the second example, and we'll pick it up there in verse 29. No, that's not right. Verse 31, it says, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. 
or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. And so the first one was about a builder. The second one is about a king that has the intention to head into battle. And what Jesus says is, man, that king better sit down and count the cost and consider if he's able to be victorious in the battle for his life. Is he able to be victorious using his own resources? And I don't know if my interpretation of this is a little different than some. Clearly, so far, Jesus has told us, hey, we're going to be building and we're going to be battling when we follow him. And that's accurate. But I think there's a reality in this. He says, you're a king and you have 10,000, but you show up and the opponent has 20,000, right? You better find a way, man, I can't beat them. So we better make peace. I believe that Jesus, King Jesus, is the one with the greater resources. When we think we're going to fight Jesus as the proud elites tried to do, the religious elites said, Jesus, we know better than you. We're smarter than you. They didn't count their resources in a way where they, they, they should have seen like, man, we don't have what we need to be saved. And they should have come to the king with the greater resources, who is King Jesus. They should have said, man, we're here. We can't beat you. We, can we talk about conditions of peace? And I'll tell you right now, Jesus is always ready to give us conditions of peace. Give those conditions of peace to anyone who wisely, willingly shows up and says, I can't beat you. You're the king. You're the great king. I, I surrender. But as we surrender to him, we get to join his army. He's our king now, and we will be victorious. It's smart to count the cost. Can I win this fight on my own? You can't. You can win this fight when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the, the eternal spiritual battle that is eternity and salvation. Jesus says, I've already won. Do you want to come and join my side? And here's the deal. He doesn't come to our side. We're coming to his side. Amen. Like, who are we to think that God should be on our side? I just need to align with God's side. I need to come and say, Lord, I want peace. Jesus says, peace I give to you. I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give to you, right? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's John 14, 27. Jesus says, in me, you'll have peace. The things of this world will all burn away. They'll all go away. Accept the invitation and count the cost and follow Jesus, willing to even die to self day in and day out. Like Luke 9, 23 says, take up your cross daily to follow him. And here's the last two verses. They're very quick. Look at 34 and 35. It says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And see, Jesus just said, unless you count the cost and you're willing to come and surrender to him, you cannot be the disciple of Jesus. You got to forsake all that you have. But let's say you've done that. You and I, brother and sister in the Lord, we have forsaken all those things. We said, we are committed to following Jesus. I will follow him today. 34 and 35 basically says this, man, stay bright light, stay salty in a good way. Not the way millennials use the word salty, like you're all mad and bitter, salty in the good way, where you are the salt of the earth. As Jesus told us to be in Matthew 5, 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. And see, in Jesus, we're to be salty, bright, on fire believers. And see, tendency in our flesh is to get lazy and start to slide away from the backslide, if you will. And see what Jesus says, man, once you've committed to following me, you've counted those costs you're in, don't give up. 
Keep coming after me because, man, salt does like two things really well. It preserves and it purifies. You can't preserve in the sense of saving things. You can't save anything without the word of God, without the spirit of Jesus Christ. If you slide away from him, you can't preserve anymore. You will be useless for what you once were useful for. And then secondly, if you're purifying, like, man, you're coming in and you're cleansing away the wickedness of the world when you reveal the word of God, the light of the world upon them. He says, but if you don't get salty anymore, if you're not salty the way salt's supposed to be, you lose your flavor. You're not good for anything. I can't even throw you on a dunghill. That's, we know what that is. I don't, I don't think I need to give, I was about to give an explanation of what that is. You don't want to be placed on a dunghill, okay? And you won't be as you stay salty and bright. And you say, well, James, how do I do that? Jesus said, John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, but without me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on in John 15, six, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch like salt that's lost its flavor and it's withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Man, let's have the spiritual ears that Jesus calls us to have. Let's hear his word. Let's heed to it. And tonight, man, I challenge you guys and love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did it first. He set the example. But I want to tell you tonight, whatever you're battling, it's not worth giving up your relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know what addiction you're fighting. I don't know what struggle you're fighting. I don't know what physical ailment you may be fighting. I don't know what just maybe you're just discontent. Maybe you're just uh, apathetic. It's not worth giving up your salvation that is in the Lord. Trust in Jesus Christ. Continue hot and on fire for him. That's where the, the blessing comes. Get over this hump. Come back to the Lord. Get in the word. Trust in Jesus Christ. And man, I'm telling you, you'll be on the other side of this trial. On the other side of this thing, you'll say, man, it was so worth it to give my life for Jesus Christ because he gave his life for me. Amen. So let's pray. And let's, uh, man, thank you, Lord, for his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for your love, Lord. And right now, before we start praying for some other things, Lord, I just want to lift up my brothers and sisters that are sick tonight. I know I have several good friends that are sick, Lord, and I pray that you would touch them, that you would heal them, that you would anoint them, Lord, to do great things, that you would, Lord, that you would allow them to just regain that full strength. I think of the man with dropsy in verses one through six. Lord, you just healed him. You touched him, healed him. Lord, I pray that you would do that tonight for my friends that are battling pneumonia and COVID and diabetes and all these things. Lord, I pray that you touch them and heal them. But Lord, I also pray for everyone out there tonight who has not yet put their trust in you, but they say, man, I am, I am a sinner. I do need a savior. I remember I've stolen, I've cheated, I've lusted. These things that the Lord says, man, the wages of those sins is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And if tonight, if that's you online, or if you're listening on the podcast at some later time, I pray right now that you would accept Jesus Christ, the invitation to the banquet. It begins with accepting the invita invitation and then following him, dying daily to his will in your life. If you want to accept Jesus Christ right now, you could repeat this prayer after me. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. 
I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.